Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. It is the world's oldest rainforest. As I said, anywhere between 140 to 180 million years old, 10 times older than the Amazon rainforest, an area that's world heritage value, right next to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Two areas that coexist, that support each other. We just want to make sure that we don't allow further development to continue. How we can help is help buy it and protect it. It's exciting just to know how many more incredible steps are ahead and the support that we're also going to be getting with traditional owners. That's James Stanton Cook, or Jimmy Halfcut. And this is episode 118 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Friends, I hope you're doing well, keeping fit and healthy and are excited for the week ahead. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Thank you for gracing us with your presence again. For new listeners, welcome. Great to have you here too. I hope this is the first of many times we get a chance to hang out together. By way of background, I'm Simon Hill, qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist and host of this show. You're in my hands for the next little bit and I promise I don't take that lightly. I realize your time is valuable and there's thousands of podcasts to listen to. Quick bit of housekeeping before we get into things. For those who follow me on the socials or are a newsletter subscriber, you probably know just a few days ago I announced my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, which is now available to pre-order and is officially out May 4th. This week after announcing the book, I was doing a little reflecting. It's crazy to see the book sitting up the the top of the list of best-selling pre-orders and I realized that that really means nothing, but it is it is crazy to see and to to look back and think about the journey of writing for me. Firstly, thank you to anyone who has ordered I really do appreciate your support and and I genuinely hope that you get as much out of the book that I believe you will. Three years ago, I started writing. I remember the first day I took a notepad. It was a black notepad and a pen. It was a blue pen. It was very old school of me. And I thought that's what writers do. And I sat by Bondi Beach and started writing whatever came to my mind. I knew I was going to write a book about nutrition, but I didn't know where I was going to go. I knew top level that people seemed more confused than ever. I knew that I was able to look at the science and could see very clearly what the science was showing us, yet that clarity wasn't making its way through to the mainstream. The first words that I wrote were confirmation bias. I wrote that at the top of the notepad and I drew a line through the middle of it. And this is something that I had got used to when reviewing papers. Confirmation bias, I'm sure you've heard of it before, but essentially it affects everyone. It's this natural tendency to search for a result or to look at data in a way, interpret it in a way that fits our pre-held beliefs that fits our worldview. It's something that we want to reduce. Instead, 
we want to look at results objectively and understand what the data actually says, not just what the abstract says, not just what the author's interpretation of the data is, not what my bias wants the study to say, but how the results can actually inform us. And that's the approach I took with the book the entire way through. It's the approach that I take with all of the information that I put out. A book that isn't selling absolutes and isn't just telling you what to eat, but also why. Understanding the why is so important to me. It's what protects us from misinformation and it allows us to adapt to a way of eating that works for us. I'm going to do an entire episode on the book in the coming weeks, but for now, because I have had an enormous amount of questions, I would like to share with you some high-level details. I wrote this book as a way of clearing the confusion. It's a look into my perspective on nutrition and the types of things I think we should all be considering when making dietary choices. A look at why we are so confused, how our environment is essentially set up, designed for us to fail, and what information we need to arm ourselves with in order to move forward confidently and upgrade our diet and health, whilst at the same time navigating our way through this life more consciously about how our decisions affect the world around us. It's written for the everyday reader, but it is extremely science-based with over 1,000 references to support the claims made. And these references aren't just any old reference. Unlike many books on shelves today, all the references I've used, except maybe two or three out of a 1,000, are references to the primary literature or reviews of the primary literature. This means I'm citing the actual research. So I'm not sending you on a wild goose chase by referencing another book where an author makes a claim, often without any evidence to support it, making it impossible for you to track down the original source. I cite the study itself so you can look at that study should you want to. In fact, I was so set on making sure that every claim is supported by the highest quality evidence that I had a handful of doctors in my network review it and Penguin engaged an independent medical doctor as well, unknown to me, to do the same. All of this is is not standard practice, but I am of the belief that if my work, my writing, my communication on nutrition is how it should be, is reflective of the science, is objective and unbiased, it should stand up under scrutiny. And it did extremely well, in fact. It's also worth noting that I wrote the book in a way that I hope enables it to be read from start to finish but then to become a bit of a Bible to come back to, particularly the last part, part three, which is all about making the shift, all the information you need to optimize your diet and really feel confident with the changes you're making or have already made. Depending on your journey, all of the concepts in the book may make sense on the first read, but equally they may not and that's perfectly okay. If that's the case, I know I will have planted many seeds and as you go away and listen to more podcasts, be it mine or others, and make changes to your plate, certain principles will begin to stick 
and each time you come back to the book, it will make more and more sense with the ultimate goal being to get you to a point where you are immune from misinformation and so confident with the way you eat, you can opt out of the diet culture that is so pervasive in our communities. Okay, so that's a bit about my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, for now. As I mentioned, it's out May 4th. You can pre-order it today at plantproof.com forward slash book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book. And the cool thing is 100% of the proceeds that I receive are being donated to charity, which we actually discuss in today's episode. On that note, let's get into it. Today's guest is James Stanton Cook, otherwise known as Jimmy Halfcut. Some of you might remember him. He was on the show about a year ago. He's a passionate environmentalist friend of mine doing incredible work to protect the Daintree rainforest and help rewild the earth. One of the most important issues in our world at this moment. So without further ado, this is Jimmy Halfcut. I'll catch you on the other side. Stanton Cook, Jimmy Halfcut, welcome back. Mr. Simon Hill, thank you, good sir. Thank you for coming back. Mate, pleasure. Thank you for having us back, mate. It's been, you know what, it's actually only been, I think, about nine or ten months since our last episode. But because so much has happened in, in the world, it it almost feels like two or three years because normally <laughs> normally yeah. the the number of things we've experienced would normally play out over over a few years. You were here last time. I think just after or in the middle of the Australian bushfires. Yep. And also around the the Great Australian Bite mm. campaigning mm. was happening. Yeah. And then, of course, this pandemic, which seems to have gone on forever. So here we are nine, ten months later and, you know, I thought we could sit down and talk about how things have have sort of transpired or progressed in this conversation around climate change and in particular mm. around deforestation and protecting our forests, which is everything that that half cut is about. But before we get into the serious stuff, I know that you had a tennis game. <laughs> <laughs> Inside word here, you've... You, oh, you, dear. You, uh, I was really hoping we weren't going to bring this you up. You took the but... core... <laughs> against a mutual friend of ours, Bobby Dazzler. A.K.A. the Terminator. Yes. Or he, tennis. He, yep. is, he is an athletic weapon. He's a beast. If anyone's not familiar with him, he's Chris Hemsworth's uh, stuntman. Yeah. And, yeah, the way that, you know, the things that he can do is pretty incredible. Yep. And what did uh, little mad Jimmy Halfcut do? I said it was half right at tennis and let's go have a match. And let's just say... Six zero, six zero, and in Bobby's words, "All right, mate, let's go get some breakfast." <laughs> <laughs> I got one serve back, and I was like, oh, "Come on!" I was like, "Yes!" And you know, I think it's just like, "Mate, are you a tennis player?" Mate, I used to uh, be, a, uh, you know, school teacher, PE teacher. Okay, so you know, play with the kids. 
Mm. I didn't really quite let out that, you know. Um, put it this way, I wasn't playing Pat Rafter in the, in the break like he was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was playing, you know, some pretty special mates, thinking yeah, I was getting gosh. the game in and, yeah. So, Bobby, mate, uh, sorry, fella. Yeah, it's, oh, um, it's, it's pretty good training having Pat Rafter to, to have a hit against up there in Byron Bay. Unreal, right? <laughs> I thought I had good court coverage, but uh, no, no chance. I met him. We did a, uh, a training session. Friends up in Byron Bay, they, they have this sort of communal training night. It's beautiful. It's uh, at a, a really nice guy's farm and he has, he's built this gym that it's in, in an area called Cooper's Shoot. It looks out over uh, Broken Head. And he set up this, you know, on the top of the hill, this beautiful like, training facility with a sauna and an ice bath. And, you know, on Monday nights, whoever whoever's around sort of drops in. It's a really cool vibe. But Pat was there and he was training. He, he trains very hard. Mm. Very, wow. very hard. And uh, it's, uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice community vibe up there in Byron Bay. Oh, totally. Well, actually, I'll talk to you about the big scrub where we're going to be planting one million trees as part of... Um the latest challenge we're launching. This is the PSS this challenge. This is the, uh, the push-up, sit-up, squat challenge. We won't go. We won't go into start with that, but let's just go straight into that, and then we can backtrack. we can loo- we can backtrack. Yeah. Let's just go wherever. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, obviously, the big scrub, one percent of it left. But um, unbelievable. What's so, the big scrub? So that's up in Byron. So it's you know rainforest, and less than one percent of it. So the whole point and the idea is to go, well, let's get behind some incredible regenerative agriculture but also some mass tree planting reforestation to rewild the earth's rainforest here in Australia because we just know how magnificent they are for water, sequestration, you know, carbon biosequestation, habitat for wildlife. And the, the research and the studies have shown that if we have more rainforest, it's actually going to slow down these fires. So these fires, yeah, we... We've had twenty. We've had a pretty horrendous twenty twenty, as you said, but now we're we've got to be aware that these fires are going to come back. So, how can you just explain that? Like, how does the rainforest slow down the the fires? Well, because hence the name rain and forest. Um, they're wetter, they're cooler. It's not to say they don't not burn. Like we know they burn. They're purposely lit. Um, obviously, with the climate crisis, as we're getting more thunder strikes and greater intensity of thunders and all the rest of it, um, not to say that it won't happen, but it, what, where the, the research came from, from Nightcap, when that was on fire, they thought the rainforests got absolutely decimated and it wasn't actually the fact. And what's actually come back from, as I said, where there was good intact rainforest, it actually slowed down these bushfires or actually halted it in some instances and the fires had to move around it. So that's pretty incredible to think that that's the impact of what these rainforests are doing. And it's like, well, let's plant more rainforests then, where they used to be but obviously through logging, animal agriculture, development, roads, yeah. So that project, the Big Scrub, that's, is that what it's called, the, the Big project? Scrub, yeah. And is that, I'm just trying to think sort of geographically, so for anyone who's not Australian or perhaps is unfamiliar with Byron Bay, it's, it's on the, the northeast aspect of New South Wales, the, 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 the northern part of New South Wales on the coast there. Is this area that you're talking about sort of in the Byron hinterlands or what is the specific area? Yeah, correct. There? Spot on. And it's it's literally so where the, the last 1% is left, it's expanding off that. So it's not like going, oh, let's go find a random place. We're looking at 218 hectares for a million trees so or to establish a million trees because 
the beautiful thing with rainforest species is you in three years you can have a developed canopy from the pioneers, which is fantastic, and then you have natural germination shooting up. So the science has shown it's about you know, 1.5 to 1.8 to plant the trees apart, and you might get two or three natural seeds shooting up through seed propagation and seed dispersal. So it's really great. So we can say we can establish a rainforest tree for about a dollar. Wow. So is this being led by private organisations or is it also the governments helping with this? And are we talking about public land or are we talking about private land that, you know, people own and, and people are planting trees on their own land? Yeah, so it's, it's a combination of all the above and it's a combination of organisations. So the Big Scrub, um, originally a land care group, they've been doing this great work. So what we're doing is half cut with the PSS 30-day challenge is just like let's integrate fitness and let's integrate that fitness challenge to help rewild individuals, so you know, rewild you, to then help rewild the earth or rewild the earth's rainforest. That's the slogan, rewild, yeah. rewild you. Rewild to, you to rewild our earth. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, and look, it's just one of these things. It's like, you know, 2% of the world's rainforests are left. Mm. The earth once had 17%. So, so why yeah. the, I mean, what's the main cause of, of deforestation in that area in particular around the, the Byron hinterlands? Yeah, well, hands down, animal agriculture, 80% as we know. All deforestation is animal agriculture. Same here in Australia. If if not, if anything, it's it's actually just as bad or worse. I mean, you probably saw recently where, as we know, we're the only developed country in the top eleven for deforestation globally. I mean, that's pretty shameful. <laughs> Do you <laughs> think yeah. that's pretty short-sighted? Oh well, absolutely. It's it's. Um, I mean, look. I mean, the way we do need to look at this is obviously coming to Australia and colonising. That was what they did. It was about you know, getting a product which was cattle or sheep or all the above and grain and all the rest of it. But we're now seeing those impacts and we're now seeing farmers leaving the land because of the droughts, because of the fires. So it gives us a great opportunity to go in, well, okay, look, sorry, you know, you've had to leave, you know, your, you know, generations of work, but we can now do some really positive, great stuff with really good outcomes. So, so tell me, I think some of the appeal of the land around there, around Cooper Shoot, that property mm. that I was just talking to you about, is uh, the guy who owns that, his name's Hutch. He won't mind me um, talking about his property here, I hope. He, I think, is a bit of an exception in that area because he's bought this beautiful parcel of land mm-hmm. and he's rewilding it. Brilliant. So he, though, doesn't need to to make money off of his land. So how does it work with the various families or, mm. or, or uh, business folks who are running a farm yep. and need need to from a commercial point of view it's their livelihood mm. how does rewilding sort of fit into that like what's what would be the motivating factor for someone in that area to say look I'm going to turn my my farm which if I was to sell it is attractive to someone who wanted to come and use it mm. as a you know for, for grazing and stuff mm. I'm going to convert it back to to dense forest yeah or even half yeah um well, I mean, apart from all the above, more rain, greater soil, which is going to then help, you know, the, if they have livestock on the on the property. I mean, I think where it's at, it's like if people do want to do this, um, which is exciting, like we're talking with farmers right now who do want to do good. Um, and our game is obviously to help fundraise for that and engage people to be like, oh, well, hey, yeah, we can do that challenge or we can do that, that, that that's easy do a bit of fundraising and I can come and plant those trees. But it's it just ensuring that so for all parties involved that it, it goes under a covenant or it's a title to ensure that all the good work we do 
in another 50 years or 10 years or if they were able, if they were to sell it, that all that good work hasn't been lost. So it is almost like a protected um, area that we're regenerating. And ideally we're doing it along corridors so it's all strategic so it can actually link up potentially to the big scrub. Because we've got to remember like we've, we've really gone smaller and smaller and smaller and now it's like, okay, well, let's start expanding again. So what you're saying then is that as a farmer actually getting involved in, in this regeneration in the long run is better for the land, even if they're still using it from 100%. an animal agriculture perspective. 100%. If they're rewilding at least part of it, it will help improve, you know, the amount of water and biodiversity and things like that. I think an excellent case study is the Dane Tree where there is, yeah, broad-scale animal agriculture in the Dane Tree, in the lowland Dane Tree, which is... Um, quite appalling when people go and see that. They're quite confronted to see cattle um, in this in the world's oldest rainforest, 140 to 100 million, 80 million years old. And I think where I'm going with this is to say, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure their cattle do pretty well with that because of the rainforest around them, because of that water, because of the feed. I'm yet to see a skinny fat cow in the danger, I'll say that. So it's, it's the proof in the pudding with something like that um, to say, yeah, you look after land. Um, yes, you're looking after your livestock, um, even though being plant-based vegans that we are, but it is a step closer to, like, as we know, educating. You but know. it probably also means less less intensive livestock if, you, if you're turning the land back into a, a more sort of denser, you know, forest, mm. forested area, mm. I would and, have thought. And that's the thing with, with what we do and how we're doing it, it's, you know, not the same species. It's a broad broad scale of different species of different plants, you know, to reduce disease if they came across. But it's, it's also ensuring that we're building a biodiverse habitat for wildlife, which we need to remember. I mean, 86% sadly are now gone. We now need to ensure that we're re-establishing, you know, biodiverse habitat, but also that biodiversity with the species actually are greater biocarbon uh, absorbers. So if you have that, so with the right now it's working out for per hectare that we're able to establish is well is the equivalent of absorbing one thousand metric tons of carbon. Mm. I think so, you know, yeah. David Attenborough made that point very mm. clear that biodiversity is key yeah. to the natural world. Being able to essentially guide us out of this position that we found ourselves in. Absolutely, and it's it's. Even with this whole carbon credits and planting the same monoculture of a tree to then be able to be sold as a carbon credit isn't necessarily, in my opinion, the way forward. I'd rather know that whatever's being planted, it's for the long term and for wildlife. And again, not just for another sale. (laughs) You know, you said 80% of deforestation is driven by animal agriculture. Mm. I get the feeling that a lot of people think of Australia and and I was probably of this mindset at some stage in my life from just, you know, not really having done the research but just just having heard from from various people that this is the case, that a lot of the grasslands that you see when you're driving around the Mm -hmm. country were, is arid land and was never forests. Do you think that that is is the sort of general perception out there? I feel that there is just so much lack of education full stop. And as you said, you've almost got to go and find it, which I think first and foremost is wrong. Um, I think it's wrong that Queensland's only media outlet is like a Rupert Murdoch. Mm. So <laughs> wrong, they have like, wrong being that it should just be the default that you, 
you, you're, you're giving that information. The information should be as open and transparent, but it's not because we know why. It's in the vested interests of certain groups to, you know, lobby, protect and feed information or misinformation. But, yeah, I think going back to what you're saying is, yeah, look, um, I mean, you know, we're the second driest continent on earth, aren't we? You know, from Antarctica, you know what yeah. I found out recently about lobbyists? And this came as a real shock to me. I knew that there are, there are lobbyists in the, the food industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, in the tobacco industry, in the gambling industry. They exist and, and they're there very much to protect the interest of whatever industry they're, they're lobbying for. What well, they're getting paid for. And, and that's, what they're, that's what they're being paid for. And, and, and we know that and we know that their interest is not... The it's not us that we're we're not their priority. Right? Whether it's our, our health or, or mental well being, in the mm. case of say gambling, mm. their interests are the profits of of that industry and and trying to maintain an industry that is as lightly regulated as possible. Mm. And what I found was really interesting was in Australia, if you if you this is this is actually more towards donations because you can donate to political parties during the election. Mm. And there was a regulation brought in that essentially stated that that all donations needed to be made public. But there's a loophole and this loophole still exists in Australia at a federal level Mm -hmm. today. This loophole, essentially, if your donation is under $13,800, it does not need to be made public. So what do you think happens? Well, that's where you get Clive Palmer who injected $80 million into Correct. the federal So election. just in the last election there was hundreds yeah. and hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. that was donated essentially secretly. It was, it was donated in multiple transactions, mm. much more than multiple, many transactions underneath this $13,800 threshold, yep. which I think is a loophole that we probably need to do something about. Well, absolutely, and it's, it should be made public knowledge before voting has commenced. Not after, not six months after, mm. but before, just to see how much money from, you know, if it's mining, logging, animal agriculture, development, this should just be general public knowledge. And, I mean, you know, I mentioned Clive Hunt before. You know, we'll probably get a lawsuit after just mentioning his name. <laughs> but that's a fact, that, you know, that, that amount of money was injected. But, um, you know, it's... it's how is that fair? How is that transparent? How is that uh, you know, a democratic process when that amount of money is being put in for lobbying and to win votes and also to get preferences? Yeah. And a lot of the, the, the lobbyists themselves, the latest, and this is a published, a peer-reviewed uh, paper, mm. did a, a survey, not a survey, they, they uh, did a, a, an investigation, I should say, into... Where whether lobbyists had previously held positions in government. Yeah. And if you look at currently at all of the lobbyists in, in the industries that I just listed before, 36% of them were previously government employees. Mm. And this, again, poses a huge conflict of interest because... The revolving door. The revolving door. Yep. The, the, these, these people develop relationships in the government. They can even be incentivized. To, mm. to help put certain policies in place or stop certain policies and then, you know, can be guaranteed jobs in the industry mm. or vice versa. And, again, it's just a clear conflict of interest. We can't, we can't have relationships between government and lobbyists mm. affecting policy. And here we are. <laughs> so yeah. 
<laughs> to, to bring that one back because we started this around the PSS challenge, mm. the, the big scrub. Yeah. So the idea is to reforest the, this part of the Byron hinterlands. Yeah, and that's just one. So we're looking at at least half a million trees in the Daintree, half a million trees in the Atherton Tablelands, far north Queensland, um, at least a million trees in Byron, uh, and we're looking to do some fairly significant tree planting in Sumatra where we're actually going to be cutting down palm oil plantation from a company that actually has given us approval to do this with our partners, Rainforest Rangers. Can you explain what the problem with palm oil is? Well, I mean, apart from just decimating Sumatra's last remaining rainforest and everyone links back to obviously orangutans, um, you know, we're pushing them to the brink of extinction just for the, the product of palm oil. Look, there is two sides to the whole palm oil. It's like, well, yes, it's nearly in everything we use, as you know, from, you know, breads to shampoos to pizza bases, certain, you know, lubrications, toothpaste, you know, the list goes on, um, 50 different names for palm oil, as we know. I mean, where I, I do get why other organisations talk about, look, it is the most sustainable oil on the planet that we have for the human population issue we have. I mean, we have a human population issue, like David Adams has been saying for years. So the way I look at it is going, okay, well, look, we, what, what would be ideal, but, you know, as we, as we know, perfection is the evil of the good. You can never do anything in perfection but try and keep getting people to go, okay, well, I'm not going to pick that product and try and find something less. Or we go, right, well, it is, let's go with the sustainability model, but then how do we ensure and stop or educate people in Sumatra going in and still cutting down the rainforest, virgin rainforest, to build you know, uh, palm oil plantations. Talk, talk me through that because, I mean, and I think David Attenborough even touched on on palm oil in, in his documentary. Yeah. And, of course, it, it, it sort of goes against everything that we were talking about before around biodiversity, <laughs> around yeah, you know, rip, yeah. ripping out these very, very, you know, richly diverse forests and, and, yeah. and growing single-line rows of, yeah. of palm trees. The I do see... From time to time, whether it's on a packaging or a company or um, you know uh, online, I see companies talking about sustainable palm, palm oil. oil. So, yep. so is is there such a thing as sustainable palm oil? Is this greenwashing? What can we make of that? Look, I, I, I when we see just the devastation and what's still going on in Sumatra um, or you know, Indonesia for that matter, and what's going on in West Papua. The damage that is happening there is just appalling. Um, yeah, it is total greenwashing. I think, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we all didn't consume as much and we really did have clear labelling of going, well, look, this is it, and legislation-wise that we should have that right to say everything is labelled on there that is clear, um, that it is palm oil and me as a consumer, I can make that choice not to purchase it. Um, but I feel almost where we're at is like, so in this particular area, so it's called the Ganar Lisa National Park where we're looking to do a million trees. What's been interesting in this process is the, the, the company we're working with or the corporation, they're happy for us to cut down the palm oil that has entroached into this national park. Uh, so that's a stepping stone. I mean, it would be lovely if they were cut it down themselves and did the reforestation, but this is then where we build the community and community power and you know, the, the, you know, the Indigenous people and the locals there who are like, yeah, well, thank you, we need to see this change, uh, which then ultimately I think will then protect it for the long term and that's what we need to work on is building that strong, you know, I guess your foot soldiers or your, your frontline action people or your community to ensure it doesn't happen again. I think that's so, one of the most important things with everything that everything. you're doing is... <laughs> is 
the connection and, and, and visually showing people what happens when you take a piece of land Mm. that has lost biodiversity mm. and you bring it back and documenting that. Yep. And and I just think that's so powerful. I think sitting in cities so far away from nature mm. where it's so out of sight, out of mind, mm. I think it's hard for pe- people to grasp what rewilding means. Yeah, especially when they don't necessarily know it because you are what you know, you are your environment. And if you haven't been shown or, you know, just subtly talked about or engaged about certain topics um, with the effects of animal agriculture or just showing small, you know, pockets of areas. I mean, um, as you know, mate, we reached up in the Daintree, couldn't get you up there because of the pandemic. That kind of sucked. Yeah, um, gosh, we had that booked. We had that booked and I was, I was really excited to show you. We were days away. I think, yeah. that, I think the, the travel ban came in, what was it, a week or so before or something like that. Something like that and it was like, no go. Um, but, I mean, what I was... It'll happen and I can't wait to show and introduce you and engage you with the lowland danger traditional owners, the Gugu Yalanji people and the Jabal Bina Yalanji Aboriginal Corporation. So I'm going back to that because it is about that community and it is about that knowledge and it is about the traditional owners and really just being able to and what we've done collectively with Half Cut with, you know, just being a support with the healing process because we're talking about people who've been taken off country but by us helping buy back these properties. I mean, seven in 2020 during the pandemic's not bad. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask about, I mean, a lot of this is bad news. I want, I want, some, oh, of yeah. go- I want some of the good the news. Good stuff, yeah. We'll, 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 let, let's, we'll let's get to flesh that, that out. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but um, I mean, I think the, the, the point where I'm going with this is it, when... You have the the rightful owners there and a community, not even, you know, like people of all colours in the Daintree wanting to see regen, wanting to see positive outcomes and seeing it be rewild. You bring together a powerful network who all have contacts, who all have other ideas or education and knowledge. And this is where we're at. We're almost in this, you know, sort of sharing of knowledge because as we know when, you know, the horrendously were taken off country, the traditional owners they're having to go through a healing process for themselves and healing of language, but then it's how we help with that healing is buying back this land to engage, to, for them to also heal the land, but then to heal themselves in one culture. And then it, that, that's what was so magic about the recent trip, which you missed out on. But, yeah, the seven properties. Um, slight slight uh, diversion here. What do you think of Australia Day, given that's coming up right now? Um, I'm really big on... I take my leadership or by what the traditional owners are saying. Um, you know, I, I go by their, their leadership and their example because I don't feel I have the right to preach or say what I'm feeling because I'm not a traditional owner, but I whatever they're saying and whatever they're feeling um, and however they want to demonstrate that, I'm in full support because of um, I just think what an incredible... Um, you know, people who have been so generous and kind considering everything that did happen and so open once, you know, that mutual respect is gained with their knowledge and their understanding. It's, um, I mean, for me, I feel it's just that that's real living and really life there where you're, you know, you're with a, the, the oldest thriving civilization, And it's going to come back. It's that full circle. It's coming back. We, you know, I mean, that would be, be nice to see. 
I think there's a bit of humility needed as well. Like we need to be... Yeah, which is uh, what I'm hoping from COVID. This is yeah. what's happened. There's going to be more kindness, more compassion. More kindness. Like, you know, that, that, more gratitude. That, that division and argument around change the date, I think that that's the least that this country could do. Absolutely. Personally. Absolutely. Okay, so PSS... Yep. Is, is, is all about these projects of, of, of rewilding these areas you're talking about yeah. from Sumatra to Byron Bay and everywhere in between. And India, which I've already mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it, basically, what it is, it's a fitness challenge, New Year's resolution for me personally. And you think, you know, for people who have all lived this pandemic, let's get behind rewilding the earth. We don't want more pandemics. We've all seen the effects of these pandemics. And we listen to the science when it is about. Well, sometimes, <laughs> some people <laughs> listen to the science about COVID. Let's really get behind and listen to the science of the climate crisis and the readily free information and solutions that are there. So one of them is a trillion trees we need to plant within 30 years to absorb the last 30 years of our carbon emissions. So in, since 1781, right, more than half of our emissions have come in the last 30 years, right? It's incredible. Right, so that this is then where we go, right, well, okay, if that's a fact and that's the case, let's then ensure we plant a trillion trees. So it's a global initiative that we're part of. Any group, any organisation, community can be a part of it. It's just a positive outcome. It's cool planting trees. You see the result. Of course, you want it to be endemic. Of course, you want it to be local species, you know, uh, and it's something every community should and could get behind, but that's not always the case. That's why we picked our locations, Byron Bay, Atherton Tablelands, Daintree, Sumatra and India and also the Philippines. So sorry, there was six there. <laughs> so which we want people to get a part of, get their hands on, come and do it. And they do that by doing the challenge, 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups, 10 squats every day for 30 days. So just, you know, it's post just, about it online. Post about it online, tag a few mates and say, look, I'm doing this, why don't you too, you know. Um, it's about starting a conversation really. Starting a conversation and, you know, what we've found is we're finding a lot of families are doing it So with their kids. The kids are all doing the push-ups and the sit-ups and the squats. It's like bringing like a little collective of, you know. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's a, it is a nice way to teach children about the, the importance of caring for our environment. I think kids mm. naturally have a love for the environment yep. like we do for, for animals and uh, the way our society is set up, you know, slowly we, more often than not, we, we lose that love and connection yeah. and it's kind of, you know, bred out of us. So mm. I think it's important that that we do have thing, initiatives like this and mm. initiatives in the school to to reconnect or really connect, you know, the younger generations to nature for sure. Yeah. And I think what kid doesn't love wrestling around with mum and dad doing some push-ups and sit-ups and squats? It takes two minutes. Bit of fun, bit of endorphins, good outcome, they share it. Oh, look, and it's like but we're doing it for this as well. Do you think the, the the pandemic in some ways, the the overall conversation of the pandemic, how do you think that mm. sort of overlapped with climate change? Do you feel like the, the sort of broader conversation in the community connected the two in, in the ways that they do overlap? I think they did, but for a very short period of time. I think what happened is we came off the back of the horrendous fires, then we went into the pandemic, and then I think people had time to sit back and kind of maybe recuperate a little bit and maybe have more time to read and engage with stuff that really is important. So, I mean, you know, we were one of the fortunate, you know, voluntary charities that did very well. You know, we had a huge injection of, 
nearly $388,000 to buy back just one property as our major campaign. And we thought, oh, you know, what have we got to lose? (laughs) So we thought, well, let's just keep going with this. And I think going back to what you were saying, it's like, well, yeah, the answer to that is I think people were able to line the dots up and, yeah, it wasn't 300,000 hectares. It was something that was, you know, nine hectares. But to know that it's protected for life, it's accessible to Australians and international and people internationally, you know, when and if we ever start <laughs> whatever the new norm is. But it's something that, you know, I feel at least with that, you know, people can put their feet on the ground, they can put their hands on the ground, they can know we're part of this. We expanded the world's oldest rainforest. And um, that property was, um, has now just been renamed uh, Gumby. So not Gumby off, uh, you know, the little Play-Doh thing figure, not the green one, but, um, but it means flying fox. So that's in the East Ngugu Yalanji language. So that property that we all save together, uh, Gumby. So that that property is one of the one seven? of the six. Yeah, one, one of the six. Of, sorry, yeah. So the, we've got six bought out, right? Which will help expand Daintree National Park, which we're going are, are going to be managed by the Jabalbina Yalanji Aboriginal Corporation with the Lowland Daintree Traditional Owners, the Gugu Yalanji people. Our current fundraising program right now is Lot One Five Seven which is now just being renamed Gorangi, which stands for cassowary, because it is just pumping with cassowaries, you know, which makes sense, right? So, the, the, um, you know, the rangers go and they, inv- they evaluate the property. We have our ecologists also who go on, Christopher Cusps, who's an incredible botanist in Australia, you know, world-renowned. I mean, we're talking 241 different species on this one nine-hectare property, but what's so magical about it Lot 155, Gumby, Lot 157, Godanji, they're right opposite each other. So it's just so great to like just get that physical visualisation that we can do this. And what we've done since our meetings, um, which you know, we will do at some stage when we're next up there, uh, we've now mapped out. We now know we can buy back 207 properties in the Daintree, strategic buyback to expand Daintree National Park, which will be protected a life. I mean, when, you know, we don't know what that monetary value is. It could be between 30 to $40 million. But it's just so awesome to know that that's a tangible outcome that we can then go, this will not go for a development approval or it will not be cut down inappropriately for, yeah, further development. Hey, friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I want to talk about the casseroles a little little more, but before we do that, in case anyone's sort of picking up this conversation and didn't listen to our first one, they should definitely go back and listen to that one. But yeah. uh, give give me an overview of the Dane Tree and why it is so special. The, you know, you're talking about buying back this land. Mm. Who's it being bought back from? Mm. And and yeah, why is this area of the world so so magical and so important to protect? Yeah, so it is the world's oldest rainforest. As I said, anywhere between 140 to 180 million years old. Not really sure, like. 10 times older than the Amazon rainforest. Um, in the late 1980s, the government of the time, Queensland government, actually allowed 1,100 hectares uh, or lots 
for subdivision in the Daintree. So that was quite a lot. And um, in a way, it almost feels like it's take two of trying to save the Daintree. So incredible people at the time, they actually stopped further roads going through all the way up into Cooktown. And um, I mean, look, you know, we're talking about um, it then after that process, becoming World Heritage, you know, UNESCO, you know, an area that's World Heritage value right next to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, two areas that coexist, that support each other. So if the danger is being affected, so is the Great Barrier Reef and vice versa. And as we know, since 2016, half the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park is now dead. So, um, yeah, I think... What where we're at with this is it's sort of like, well, we just want to make sure that we don't allow further development to continue. Uh, we recently stopped a bridge. And when I say we, all these other incredible organisations and local community, they stopped a bridge being built into the Daintree. So why is that so important? Well, it just would have increased more development, more access, more likelihood of wildlife being hit by cars. So right now you have to go across that river on like yeah, a, a ferry, ferry right? Yeah, ferry, and it's an experience. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going into the world's oldest rainforest. You're able to switch off. Like you're, a, you're able to be in the now rather than just in another flying vehicle. But that's going to make it much more expensive to develop and, and less practical, right, by, by having to go over on a ferry every time. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean what, what's actually happened now is, you know, good on the, the local constituents of the Douglas Shire Council, they voted against it. So they 66% wasn't necessarily a landslide, so that's cool. We've got some good educating to doing. Uh, but 33% said yes. Uh, you know, unfortunately, human beings, we seem to like to continue with progress. So it doesn't mean we're completely in the clear, but what that's given us is a time period to go, we've got four to five years to buy back the rest of the Daintree. We can bloody do this. We've got, we have to. We're going to do it. And then that's, that's just the strategic high-end value properties. We're not even talking about the properties that we can engage in regen. So there's just this ongoing continue and then not even that, then it's, it's, it's being able to employ traditional owners and green business, you know, eco jobs, um, you know, running Airbnbs and running education facilities and running further nurseries and tree plantings, running medicine and learning from traditional owners, real cultural hits that, I mean, for me, you can say I love it. <laughs> I absolutely, you know, I get a buzz out of it and I just kind of think, well, you know, maybe if I get a buzz out of it, if we can help people get a buzz out of it too, well, then that's, Touch the heart, touch the mind, and they're going to go and speak about it and want to get more hands on. So you you said strategic sort of plots of land. How yeah. do you how do you choose which lands are are the ones that you're going to focus on buying back? Yeah, so we had an incredible um, colleague uh, who went out and actually um, mapped out all of the strategic potential properties, which um, you know didn't have any development on them first and foremost, but if they did have development, if how bad it was and if we could regen or if it could be used for other infrastructure, like I mentioned before, like a nursery, but also that it that we can expand Daintree National Park. So that's sort of like the three criteria and there's a lot more to it as well. Like we have, as I mentioned, the ecologist Christopher Cusp, he goes and surveys how many species of plants are on this property and sometimes we're finding new species. I mean, we're not, we haven't found it all. We haven't discovered it all. So we're finding new species or species that we thought um, weren't in that region or had moved on. Um, so, and again, like, I mean, for me, I get excited about that because, I mean, what medicines could be discovered in there, you know, uh, let alone, you know, the habitat for wildlife. I mean, you know, new insects are still being discovered and, all, you know, there's just so much we still haven't even, you know, been able to scratch the surface on. So the way I look at it is go, well, we can help or, you know, our supporters and our engagement, how we can help is help buy it and protect it. So then we can put the money into research, into seeing what medicines could be in that Daintree, which 
you know, we're talking about pandemics. Well, this is one of more to come. We won't even go into permafrost and all the rest of it. But anyway, you get what I'm saying? Like it's it's exciting just to know how many more incredible steps are ahead um, and the support that we're also going to be getting with traditional owners. So you, you've mentioned traditional owners a few times. So mm. when you buy back the land, mm. the, the Indigenous traditional owners will own that land. What's the difference between that and sort of protecting it as like national heritage, for yeah, example? Yeah, so sorry. So yeah, the, the properties we're buying are private. So if anyone right now wanted to go on and type in Daintree and they could look at a bunch of properties and I have friends doing this at the moment going, hey, Jimmy, mate, I, I really like what you're doing. Uh, rather than making a donation, I'm kind of keen to buy this, but I'm happy to do a contract with you guys. So when I do sell, I ensure that I gift it over to you guys. Awesome. Like we, we, we're not just like one way with it. So they are private properties. So for example, like um, Lot 124 this year, um, you know, we got for $25,000. Right, twenty five grand, and it, it was awesome because it was very easily. Well, not easily. I should take that back. It, it was a, quite a nice, short, tangible outcome to achieve for fundraising, and we did that. And then we got another one at twenty five, and that's how you keep on building. So we're, I think, right now we're at about thirty three acres of the Dane Tree we've helped protect. So thirty three football fields and um, when, of rainforest. And when you succeed with the two hundred and seven, how many how many football fields? Yeah. Equivalent. Well, we're, we're looking at probably 200, 260 hectares. So then that would be double that nearly. So let's just round it off, say 380 um, football fields or, you know, uh, MCGs or, yeah. And for so someone exciting. to sort of make sense of that, because, I mean, numbers can, can be very hard to sort of make sense of mm-hmm. uh, in terms of carbon and water. Is that something you've looked at? Absolutely. So the across the board, the research has shown that every acre or every football field of rainforest that's protected, that's the equivalent of 76,000 litres of water sequestered every year. So that's a good thing. And that's why it's also important that we regen. Um, the, the carbon is you know, being very more you know, conservative on this one here because it's still being established. But what we have found is um, from planting one hectare of rainforest species, on the average amount, it's as I mentioned before, 1,000 metric tonnes of carbon can be stored. So but what the reason is is that we're still finding out so much more about how much even these vines, how much carbon they can store, like because the, the, the biodiversity is so out of control and awesome we just don't have the science yet behind it. And you also kind of have to also consider what carbon would be emitted if that land wasn't secured and was used for other purposes. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're seeing horrendously in the Amazon right now, you know, it purposely being burnt, releasing that carbon and then, yeah, into cattle. So, yeah. So the Indigenous uh, traditional owners must be very supportive of what you're doing and, and very grateful. Tell me about that. Tell me about the the experience with, with handing back the land to them. Certainly. I mean, so it's in an alliance which um, where, and I think it all comes back down to first and foremost, that respect and trust, uh, which we've been developing for two years. So that's with the Jabalbina Yalanji Aboriginal Corporation and Rainforest 4. So we're in a brilliant alliance where it's... Um, you know, what, what I feel we're all most proud of is we just sort of said, hey, look, this is what we're good at doing or we think we're good at doing, you know, getting people to engage and, you know, help raise funds for the Daintree um, because they've either been there or they have a connection and they want to help do something about it. Um, but I think the fact that, yeah, that we were just chipping away, like we went through a pandemic, everyone shut down, 
we kept on chipping away. And then before we knew it, we we're like, hey, guys, we actually raised nearly 400K. Well, I think we're going to get this property. <laughs> so it was only 230 grand, I think. And so I think it was just that sort of like, okay, these guys, you know, we've had meetings, we've had chats, we've done face-to-face. Jimmy half cuts half all right. Um, and I think I think at the end of the day, like it's a combination of that, that, that just that trust, that realness, you know, um, being able to, you know, feel that positive energy and that, you know, we are doing this together. Um, and there isn't an agenda here. I mean, the whole agenda is just to protect the world's oldest rainforest. That's the ultimate agenda. And I don't think that's such a bad thing. I think it's quite a, a special thing. And um, we, got, we, we can do it. That's what's exciting. You spoke about, I mean, doing it together and, and also about the funds that you've raised. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the, the funds that you've raised have been in partnership with, banks and, and yeah. other organisations. Yeah. I know that last time we caught up, some of those relationships were perhaps in their infancy at the at the beginning but seemed to have really strengthened over the, the course of the last nine months and there seems to be some great success that you've had. Do you want to oh, yeah. run me through, you know, that those relationships that you've built and how that's enabled you to reach more people? Look, and... Um like sort of puts the hairs up on my skin because it is one of these things that just shows what you said before, like we got to do this. Like I look at it like we're all trees, right? Like the ethical bank I brought on, Bank Australia, um, ethical electricity and over community energy, which 100% renew, you know, renewable energy with 50%, so half, so just that just and, happened to work And they're well. opening up in Queensland soon, I Yeah, saw. yeah, they're ready to launch in Queensland. So again, pandemic held them back, but they're ready to go. But, but to think that they're, you know... A, pretty much as, you know, as a small fry and to think that they're giving half of their proceeds to communities, if it's environmental, if it's education, if it's further solar panels. I mean, I think it's just brilliant and I think really positive stuff. So tail hats off to them and then the other, um, the other super is Australian Ethical Super. Uh, we're in a bit of trouble at the moment with our <laughs> fig tree with land lease and uh, anyway, so... What, hap- what happened there? Oh, gosh, it's... Um, so Australian Ethical Super actually give money to land lease for their sustainability practices with building, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, fig tree at the moment, which is prime uh, habitat for koalas, uh, is, yeah, um, it's going to be developed upon from Lendlease. So this is just, it's sort of gone a bit viral in the Twitter world. So I'm hoping, I'm really hoping Australian Ethical do the right thing here and they've talked about saying that they, they, they're not in control of what Lendlease do, but I hope they do the right thing and maybe consider divesting. Because, um, I mean, I think we're going back to what you said before is, we brought on what we thought were the most outstanding ethical corporations, you know, or services. So three essential services, bank, your super, your electricity. So as you said, it was in its infancy. Uh, we created the triple switch, which was a divestment campaign. 15 minutes, you can divest, you know, and can be Can you away. explain in, in case that's the first yeah, time someone's sure. heard divestment? So divestment is ensuring you're divesting either your bank, your super, your electricity. If you have insurance, it can be insurance as well. Or if you're a pensioner, it can be a pension as well. But divestment, the whole idea of it is to say, well, my money that's in your bank, I don't want that invested in deforestation, animal agriculture, tobacco industry. You know, fossil fuels. Fossil fuels. Yeah, sorry, big, big one. So that, you know, you, it's the big four usually, you know, the big four banks here in Australia, you know, Commonwealth, ANZ, Westpac, um, you know, these guys have. But in the same time, they are, you know, pulling back as well. But for us, we then went with the ones who straight off the bat 
we're not investing in X, Y, and Z, and that's our bottom line. So we, it was just a very organic relationship and reaching out. Um, highly recommend if anyone's got any ethical business, reach out to these guys. They are flipping awesome, right? They want to hear your story because, you know, that's good stories, it's good outcomes, it's people being educated. So please do reach out to them. Which organisations are? Bank Australia. Bank, Bank Australia. Australia and Anova. So Bank Go Australia hard. are not investing into fossil fuels? Fossil fuels, animal agriculture, deforestation, tobacco, full stop. So this is the thing, right? Your money goes a long way when it just sits there. So that's the whole thing of divestments. So pulling out from the bad guys or cutting ties with the bad guys and going with the people who you ethically and what you personally believe in. I think that's something that that perhaps a lot of people aren't aware of, that, that, that your funds when they're yeah. sitting in a bank are being put Invested. to work. And they're they're very much being put to work. That's why the, the banks are all competing for, for you your account. Yep. So... What you're saying is to try if if your if your values are that you you don't want to support fossil fuels and animal agriculture and such, then choosing a partner mm. for your bank that is also shares that same sort of belief system and is aligned with that vision. And it's actually one of these things because of how time poor we all are. It can be nearly achieved the process in 15 minutes. And that's pretty powerful to go, all right, I want to give 15 minutes up of my day to start this process to ensure I'm not investing in all the bad stuff. And actually what we found off the back end of that is then these, you know, Bank Australia were incredible. They said, oh, look, we'll do the half-cut thing too. And we're like, awesome. They raised 150 grand, 150 grand, nearly half of the funds for lot 155, Gumby. Um, Incredible to just sort of see that community wanting to be a part of it and hungry and wanting more and helping to support further um, campaigns, which is just so brilliant. Um, and, look, you know, we had 6,800 people divest. <laughs> you know, like that is quite significant. Um, and the money in that to know it's not being put into the fossil fuel industries or animal agriculture, deforestation, logging, etc. that's powerful in 15 minutes. So it's like, well, pick what you want to do. You can either do the half-cut challenge and have a laugh. You can do a fitness challenge and help rewild yourself on the earth. Or, hey, why don't you divest in our triple switch for earth? So, um, you know, and, and what's great about this is they're still carrying on that. So if anyone right now was like, hey, you know what, I do want to switch my electricity. I don't want to be with those buggers Origin Energy who are, you know, having properly consulted traditional owners in the Northern Territory and they're pushing ahead with fracking, unconventional gas extraction, um, huge le- levels of methane, um, being released in the atmosphere, you can actually go, no, you know what, I'm going to go with it Nova. And half, you can, if you put half cut 50 in as a promo code, half cut 50, $50 is going to save 20 square metres of Daintree rainforest. So it's just this ongoing, you know, circularization. Like it's almost like we've developed a circular economy for good. When I signed up for a Nova, there yeah. was, there was a, an additional option uh, around green power. Have you seen that on their yeah. website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know much about that? Yeah, so right now obviously they're in like that transition stage and, and they're still going into the grid. So the green power is obviously just to ensure that 100% of your electricity is 100% renewable energy. So their model is, you know, they're probably you know a year off or six months, could be two, until they're a fully functional 100% renewable energy outlet for your electricity. Okay, so, so, so it's about establishing, raising more funds to establish more infrastructure to be able to create more energy? Correct. So it's a combination of that. It's a combination of also, um, you know, finding areas that, you know, rooftops and communities sure. and the whole gardens where, yeah, they can yeah, actually... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very neat setup, isn't it, that business model? Very cool. And it's, it's I mean, look, you know, 
this is again, it's just that education. It's there, it's working, it's successful. You know, it, we're not destroying, they're not destroying sacred sites. They're not forced, you know, silver spooning traditional owners. They're not affecting our water to, you know, to the levels of, you know, they don't, they don't have unlimited water irrigations licenses like Adani. There's just so many things where you just kind of sit back and go, we can do this. We just need the, more of the good people. And that's the thing, just good people, kindness, engagement, gratitude and getting behind and going, hey, look, 15 minutes, I can do that. So do you know Inova, are, are they just like based around Sydney area at the moment or can you get Inova energy across Australia? Long-term vision, I'm sure, with Anova will be they'll be completely national um, from little things, big things grow. So they start off in Northern Rivers and Byron um, and now they're moving to Queensland and obviously Melbourne and then beyond. So, yeah, it's um, little and slow it's, it's steps. A, but it's an interesting company too. It's a, it's a public company, not listed, mm. and you can, you can actually buy shares Absolutely. on their website. That's right. You can be a part of this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, they're... It, it all goes back to that monetary value, right? But at least with this, it's not like it's going to go, oh, well, we're going to get big and then go to fossil fuels. That ain't going to happen. So, and yes, as we know, yes, you know, everything requires resource, silicon, lithium, all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, at least they've got that foresight as well to go, well, who are we going to then go with to recycle this? And, who, you know, rather than this being just, you know, toxins ending up in landfill and not being addressed, like there's just some really neat stuff happening, so... What you said about the the banks and the divestment there, mm. I think, is really powerful in terms of sending also a message to the big banks mm. when customers are leaving because they want to go, yeah, because they want to go to a, another bank that is aligned with their values, like mm. Bank of Australia. Where I see that being hugely powerful is them then sitting down on a whiteboard and, and essentially being forced into a position where they decide, well, look, we, we need to to change the way we're investing mm. or we stand to lose a lot of our, mm. our customers and... And um, all lawsuits. And lawsuits. So yeah. um, that's going to be an interesting space over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Well, we're seeing it right now, like um, young fellow, forgotten his name, um, you know, who sued REST because they actually didn't have any form of addressing the climate crisis or solutions within even their business model to say, well, this is our impact that we're going to be doing and he won. So then this is the thing, it's, it's just showing like, we're getting to that point where, you know, these businesses and these corporates can make the shift and the quick done. They're the ones that do need to make that really quick switch. What's the rest? rest is a super? Yeah, it's a superannuation fund, yeah. So he, he started a, a lawsuit. Against rest, yeah, and he won. Gosh. So it was incredible. So this is what we're getting at. Like it's, it's, it's going to happen. Like governments and people in power right now globally will probably most likely in years to come be held accountable for their inaction on the climate crisis, for their inaction with getting on with the real business of the renewable era and, um, you know, the practices as scientists have been saying for decades. It gets to a point once you have the science, it becomes a bit of a moral obligation to to act on it if you're in a position. I mean, mm. similar to, 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 I don't want to draw comparisons in terms of, you know, relative risk numbers and, and whatnot, but broadly speaking, similar to smoking. Yeah, we we got to a point where there was so much data that the, it was it was just incredibly 
incredibly clear how yeah. we needed to change policy and change yeah. the way we were speaking about cigarettes. And 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 I mean, even now we still they're still sold. Yeah. Um, they're they're out of eyesight, but it's it took a long time for people to act on that. Yeah, ten years, and even then, people lying in courts through their teeth to mm. say it's healthy and we're fine and we're good. It's a, and I think that's the thing. History has repeated, well, does repeat itself and we're, we're likely to say that again. Is, uh, I think it's just the time. I think the timing and the urgency is where I think we've really got to just, you know, positively step it up and say, okay, well, I'm not going to put that on the back burner. Like instead of maybe going off to the gym and making that my priority today, I'm going to make that a quick little priority. Like, you know, I just kind of feel there's little things that, um, I mean, you know, hopefully, mate, from the back end of this, everyone's going, oh, well, great. You know, I'll go and divest straight away or I'll have a crack at it and or set do up a bit of research. Or go to Dale's website, triplesswitch.org. Have you got any data on, on Triple Switch? Can you see how many people are doing it and do you have, do you have like a, a target for that? We had we had no target. It was a fresh campaign. So divestment, it came off, it was, it was originally banks and then what we did is we went, oh, well, why don't we get people divesting their bank, their super and their electricity? Triple Switch, makes sense, right? 6,800 people off the back end of it divested. We had more people divesting than we had going half cut, which we get. You know, this well, is a it's bit so of a- simple. You can, you can do triple switch yeah. in, if you, if you set aside one hour Boom. and, and, and done. sit down, you could move through and change your, or at least get the paperwork done for energy bank yep. and super. Well, and look, and, and in saying what we've found from that is the market. We've had other banks reach out to us, other superannuations groups. Um, so one I will actually really, really encourage is make your mark investment. So they're a superannuation group. I think personally from the research that I've done and meeting the founders, what I'm really pleased about to see is, let's be honest, when you're, you're super, how often do you open your super up and see who they're investing in? Come on. No, it's like, kind of set probably, and forget, right? It's set and forget and walk away. These guys will update you monthly on who and what they're investing in, which then educates you and then you look at the businesses and go, oh, wow, I don't mind them. Maybe I'll invest in them as well and put some of my shares towards that if they're a public company, you know, limited by guarantee or, you know, an open public company. So it's that sort of educating and getting on top of the game a little bit more and figuring out who the good guys are. And then um, I just think that is really special that they're willing to go monthly. We will update you with who and what we're investing your money with. Powerful. And I think I think I might have even read this on your website. I think you have mm-hmm. an article on divestment, which mm-hmm. anyone can check out if they want to learn a little bit more about it. But you mentioned uh, BlackRock, I think, off the top mm-hmm. of my head, who who have have stopped investing into fossil fuels. Is that yep. right? Yeah. That's huge. It, this is the thing and that's where it is huge because in those these corporations then go, oh, wow, what's happening? There's a shift happening here. We haven't thought ahead. We've made the boom with the money now. We've got to quickly change. I mean, no one wants to lose customers. So this is, it's almost like a form of lobbying in a way but by individual action. So if we get them, you get numbers and that keeps on trickling and gets bigger and bigger. It just uh, needs to be done a lot faster. Like we need people going, boom, I'm doing it. I'm going to nominate five mates or five family members, which again will create healthy conversation. It's all you want, healthy conversation, but hopefully with a direct quick action. And we're talking, of course, here about Australian companies largely. Um, That's where we're sitting. Mm. But for anyone who's overseas... They can, they could easily jump online, I'm sure, and 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 look for local banks or local super or or renewable energy companies in yep. their area, and and make you know the the best decision based on where they're located. Yeah, and look, that's where we're going 2021 because we've had these conversations with international people to say, hey, look, I don't even know where to look or start. Um, 
it, again, it's, it's, it is education. It's calling up. It's asking for information. But if we can find that and package it nice and neatly for people, then that's just a bonus. So that's where we're at right now to figure out, well, how can we support you um, if it's India or the Philippines or if it's the States, yeah. Something that this is a bit of a, a, a change in gear here, mm. something that I haven't spoken about yet on the podcast but I've kind of alluded to in previous episodes when talking about my book was that it was really important for me to make sure that that book was helping contribute to these solutions for climate change, what we're talking about here in terms of planting trees and protecting forest. Mm. Probably one of the most extensive chapters in my book is on life on the planet and and why we need to start taking this issue more seriously and, and, and why this conversation is really important. Mm. And I look at it very much from a perspective in the book of, of how our food choices are affecting this. Mm. But, but I also, of course make it very clear it's not just a food mm. issue there mm. there is certainly a huge energy issue that we need to solve as well but food is is a very important part and is often downplayed mm. um, what I wanted to add or I guess announce is that 100% of the proceeds from the book so every cent that I receive not profits every cent will be donated directly to Halfcart. And so perhaps you can explain to people, should they decide that they want to buy the book and and read what I have to say uh, or listen, there will be an audio book as well. Um, what what will those proceeds be going towards? Yeah, and look, Simon, first up, mate, like it's game changers and people like you and blokes like you who are willing to do that and... See the bigger picture. I mean, it's, it's courageous, mate. No other word for it. I think that's what we need, people to be courageous like you and others to continue to be courageous and, uh, you know, we've only got everything else to lose, right? <laughs> Six mass extinction doesn't sound good to me. Um, yeah, so, I mean, mate, what your book will be doing and your, you know, incredible supporters who want to get behind it and obviously as us as half cut and, you know, as myself, mate, it's just pure gratitude for what you're doing you are going to be part of this and your supporters. So every page turned or every book that's open, you're going to be saving a dane tree. So you'll be reading this, getting educated with your knowledge and the information you have and going, hang on a second here, I'm actually, this is a very tangible, real thing and 100% of the profits are going to save this. I mean, I don't know if it's ever been done before, mate. I think it's pretty bloody fantastic. But I think even what's better than that is your 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 supporters and the people who connect with what you do are going to be able to get up there. I want to ensure that they come and, you know, they're, they're seeing what they've helped save through the purchase of your book and also the tree planting efforts. Yeah, and, and you know, for those who can can come up and see it, that would be oh. incredible. And for everyone else, we will... I think we do a book launch up there as well, mate. For sure. Up, up in Cairns and up in the Dane Tree. Pick, pick, your, pick your location. And we'll, we'll document as well in, oh, yeah. in video form to, to show... Around the world, what's going on? How how the the proceeds from the book have been able to help contribute to everything that Half Cut's doing? Yeah. So I think that'll be that'll be really nice. I'm looking forward to to actually. I think this. I think charity in in some ways 
you know, you, you donate, but you kind of, you don't necessarily always see, tangibly see what, what you know, because people who are, who are donating, whether it's through buying a book or just mm. donating, they're making a decision to, to uh, let go with some of their money. Yeah. and to help support something. Mm-hmm. But often we don't fully appreciate where those funds have gone. Yeah, and or uh, uh, think about where it's gone and it's, all, it's almost like a switch off until they get the next email for them, you know, we, oh, I'm being spammed. And I think this is the point of difference. Like I think that the fact that you're going to be, your feet are going to be on the ground and who knows, I mean, you know, we'll find out, but it could, your book could raise half the funds required to buy back the rest of the Dane Tree. Who knows? It might be a couple of properties, but it, it all matters. And I think that's the thing. I think what I loved about your, the idea with this is your book also, you know, aiming to be carbon neutral mm. and we'll be able to do that with the tree planting. We know we're going to be doing that with the tree planting. but Hopefully carbon negative. Carbon we'll negative, yeah, that would be... Well, well, I, don't, I don't know if that's been done. I think it's, it's new. Like we were talking about that last time. And I, I look, I, I think if we're going to be, look, this is just the beginning. Like we want to plant 3 million trees and we want to save 200 to 240 hectares of the Dane tree in the next five years. That 3 million trees, that ain't a trillion yet. So that we're going to keep on just doubling. That's all we want to keep doing. Double, double, double each year and just get more people totally connected. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the broader vision, mate. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. I think one of the the other things that we spoke about was being able to give some objective data back to someone mm. who does buy the book so that you can see objectively what that looks like in terms of, you know, acres saved or or metric tons of carbon dioxide or water, for yeah, yeah, example. Yeah, sure. We're going to set up a, a counter. So you're going to have a counter. You're going to have how much water is being protected, uh, how much carbon will be absorbed. Um, and we're, we're still playing and working with um, the absorption or the equivalent mm. for per cars. But people can come to, to plantproof.com or to your website and yeah. they'll be able to see a, a live counter that is continually updating based on book sales and also anyone who comes through the Plant Proof community and signs up to a, a monthly donation should they decide to want to do that. Can you explain how that works? Totally. So what we're really big on is um, and what we found is people want to keep doing more, which is brilliant. So if they were wanting to say, well, okay, I want to deal with my carbon footprint or be part of the Daintree buyback, People can sign up for a monthly recurring giving donation if it's two dollars fifty. We have a lot of people who do two dollars fifty, but then I have a lot of people who do you know twenty five to fifty to a hundred. Like it's whatever you can chip in and do. It all matters because as I said, two dollars fifty half the price of a coffee. We're making action. So I guess um, I mean what you're doing is extremely special and unique, and I think groundbreaking. Um, and then we also have other businesses who give a percentage of their profits because they do want to be part of this. And as you rightly mentioned before, it's like yeah, well let's be carbon neutral. Let's go carbon negative. I think that's even cooler. And I, th- I think with the trees that we're going to be planting, with the vision we have in, in place, we're definitely going to be able to achieve that for some 
smaller businesses for sure. Talk me through, I mean, at the moment we're talking, I guess, more around the the everything that's happening in the Daintree and that you're working on. But mm-hmm. you're, I would say, in terms of anyone that I know anyway, uh, across environmental issues in Australia, mm-hmm. you know, as much as anyone that I know. And I think last time we were talking about the Great Australian Bite, mm. that was that was topical at the time. Mm. Thankfully, that didn't go ahead. Mm. It seems like a, a lot of environmental issues often fly under the radar and, and the average person is not really aware of what's going on. I, I'd say that before the first time you were on this show, mm. probably a lot of people were unaware that the Daintree, the world's oldest rainforest, uh, is is under threat of, of being developed and, and losing part of it forever. Mm. What other major issues are happening in Australia right now that you're aware of that perhaps people should think about becoming, you know, mm. more aware of or, or reading about? Sure, sure. Um, and just for full transparency with the Daintree, it's, it's what we're buying back is, you know, virgin rainforest that hasn't been developed. We don't want it to be developed. So, I think it'd be, I don't think, I think after losing the bridge proposal, I don't think they're going to go off and try and develop more. What we're trying to do is, okay, that has a DA approval on it. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but certain projects like, geez, I mean, right now, like one that's very close to my heart is the Northern Territory. One of it, you know, where traditional owners do not want fracking to be conducted. Um, and I spoke about this last time, so this is ongoing. So one thing, it was a good tangible outcome and action that people can do is like, hey, find out who your electricity's with if you're with one of the big four guys or if you're especially with Origin Energy, give them a phone call and say, hey, I'm not, I don't, I don't, this ain't cool. From my understanding, I spoke to, I heard it from Jimmy Halfcart, he's half all right. Um, but I, I was in this campaign for four years, so I know quite a lot about it, but what I'm getting at is you can divest because they are spearheading and they are pushing forward for fracking the NT. So that's just one really quick, simple one people could look but into. Do, they, do, do, do Origin push any sort of renewable green message they do, at the same time? which is time? crazy, right? So I actually in this pandemic as well, my, my actual pay job, <laughs> Um, I was able to get 13 councils to go 100% renewable energy in the Greater Sydney who are in contracts with Origin Energy with the Maury Solar Farm panel, uh, Maury Solar Farm. So people go, oh, that sounds great. But that's only up to about 25 to 35% of the renewable energy targets um, part of the southern Sydney regions of councils in Sydney. So any council could opt in to be part of that. But then on the flip side where, sure, that council's getting 25 to 35% maybe of renewable energy, You've got Origin Energy through the Australian Institute who have said, if this goes ahead, a conservative estimate, if this fracking goes ahead in the Northern Territory, it's the equivalent in building and operating 50 new coal-fired power stations for 30 years. So when we're living in the climate crisis, when the world is decarbonising and going, well, we just can't keep doing this, we're pushing ahead with this. And then even our government at the moment going, oh, we've got the next transition, you know, the next transition is, cl- is gas and it's clean. It's a flipping fossil fuel. It's a load of crock shit. There's no such thing <laughs> as clean gas. It just doesn't exist. And then it's the damage to the aquifers. It's the damage, you know, it's the methane that doesn't get captured. And the methane's interesting because it's, mm. it's, it has a shorter life it's span, more but potent. it's so much more potent. And like yeah. 28 times at least yeah. more potent over 100 years. Than coal, yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah. So if we're wanting to, to, to draw down carbon quickly, it makes sense to, to cut as much methane off as quickly as possible. So, I mean, and again, this is where people, I think like ourselves and... You know, who we chat with and it's like 
we have to plant a lot of trees, we have to stop cutting down, we have to stop mining or fossil fuels and let's get on with renewables. <laughs> like it's really not that tricking complex but it is bloody complex then when people, you know, um, enjoy you know, enjoy their dividend or enjoy, you know. Um, so is there anything else in, in, in Australia? Or is that the, is that the Oh, no, sorry, yeah, look, geez, well, well, that's one that, you know, for me personally, very close to heart. I mean, you know, obviously everyone's appalled with the koalas and further habitat being destroyed after the fires. I think you just need to go on and look at any group dealing with development and more roads. Um, yeah, you know, everyone, you can look into that in New South Wales wide and, um, you know, another major, major one that's really close to me is the Tarkine um, swift parrot population, which is, you know, on the brink of extinction nearly. I um, mean, you, you know, we're talking about the, the world's second largest temperate rainforest. I'm running in that. Oh, you're doing the Tarkine trails? In uh, May oh, 20th. Boom. Good stuff. You should come down. Well, I, I did the last one. I trained up for it and then I busted my ankle. Okay. So I raised the money, but I didn't do the run. Mm. I was. Uh, I reckon you could train up now. How's the ankle now? Oh, sweet. Just don't I know went for it. a 17K run yesterday. I'm pretty sore today. I bet. Yeah. Oh, well, you're going to love it. And I think they've changed the track a little bit. It's yeah, not tell so me much about it. What's, what's the track? Give me a bit of give well, me a bit of inside info on the track. Do I need to be doing uh, some trail runs? Oh, look, I would yeah, totally. I would probably recommend it. even um, a good location. I would recommend and just for full transparency, I actually didn't even do the run. I've just been to the Tarkine okay. a bunch of times, and I know some of the circuits they've done, uh, and some great people as well. I think your best bet get to the Royal National Park. It's a bit rocky like that in some places where that's the killer apparently. The, the, all the sandstone and the rock and, you know. Yeah, you um, slide out a bit. Slide out a bit and, you know, it's likely to be raining and whatnot. But um, oh, mate, Describe well the Tarkine. Oh, geez. Well, world's tallest flowering plant is one of them. You know, incredible mountain regnants, you know, blue gums. Um, there is something that is so special. Like so the Daintree and the Tarkine are my two go-to places for rainforests. Um Again, it just has an essence, it has a feeling. Actually, traditional owners, as from what we know, uh, they actually didn't spend a huge amount of time in the Tarkine because it was just too wet. It was just too big, it was too dense, it was too dark. There was, you know, it was hard to hunt. Um, I mean, it, it is just the most spectacular place that you just... It's like Avatar, the best way to put it for me. Maybe I like, think of an Avatar... Um, sort of feeling and vibe and just uh, truly special, True, truly, truly. Home to the uh, Tasmanian devil. Tassie devil, correct, yep, um, which we know, again, endangered as well. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, the eastern spotted quoll as well. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't been to the Tarkine, it's one, again, a place you go to and then you are appalled by what's happening. And to think it is being cut down for plantation, again, a monoculture of the same plant, we don't. What are they planting down there? So it's plant, tree plantation. So okay. the way we are cutting down old growth rainforest, setting it on fire, releasing all that carbon, just to replace it with a monocultural tree for 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 forest for for timber. For timber, so it's logging. Well, it's that a timber, and if sorry, if, if if anything, which is even worse, wood chips, mm. wood chip. So at the end of the day, we're at a point where any old growth can't be Did touched. you speak to any locals down there? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a bit hard not to speak to locals like this. Actually, um, I, it's interesting. I, I tend to now quite get disgruntled locals because they know my game and what I'm about now, even to the point where it's, it's borderline, um, you know, um, stalking really. 
uh, in both the Daintree and and the and down in Tassie. And that's so that's that's locals who are pro logging and pro development. Pro logging, and and they're coming from a financial situation, financial point of view. So so livelihood yeah. that's their industry. Yeah, where we look at it, it's it's taxpayers are actually keeping these industries alive. They are running at a loss. If it was a coffee shop for some of the, you know, it's it's in the excess of seventeen million dollars, that you know, and even more that we're paying as taxpayers to keep these jobs afloat. Um, again, you know, is, I would much rather that money going into developing further education or further local tourism, the things that people want to do. And I mean, I think look, there's pandemic. So how's that work? Can you explain to me how that works? I think some people may be confused yeah. by that. Yeah. Look, I mean, how it's basically worked is, you know, it's. <laughs> to keep people, uh, you know, in politics, to keep people in their vested interests, these are some of the deals that they have made. It's quite appalling. Like, I mean, it's appalling to think that much money is being spent to keep a business that isn't profitable running. So if people wanted to look this up, they could just go to the Bob Brown Foundation and actually yeah. find this information. So that, clear. That, that's because the industry employs a lot of people and it's important to to, to keep the jobs there yeah. or is it because uh, we need the timber or what, why would the government they, be? Yeah, it's it's this, it's the million-dollar question. Why do we keep pushing this? And in, in, I think it's the old story. A very small percent are getting very rich and wealthy, like the, the CEOs and the co-CFOs and all the rest of it. And the rest of them, are, you know, you're there to do a job and if we don't have the job, we'll see you later. Whereas in it's like, um, I mean, I think going back to before, like this pandemic, even though, yes, it was even hard to go interstate, um, you know, th- these are the jewels that if we are pandemic-free for now, I mean, this pandemic is one as many more, more to come as we know, um, you know, these are the things that people want to be seeing and doing. I mean, I think the rest of the world is looking at Australia going, geez, you lucky buggers, you seem to have got it all right sorted over there, like where, you know, where we're at. Um, with you know, the pandemic and numbers and all the rest of it, but um, it's ironic we're we're per capita probably the biggest polluter, <laughs> the, the, biggest, biggest polluter. The, the biggest polluter. We're we're just lucky oh, that no, our yep. country is actually so large, yeah, um, and smallish population, smallish yep. population. Yeah, if Australians were on a much smaller country, we would have decimated it oh, by yep. now. Yep. Well, half is already gone. We've already destroyed half of yeah. So we get a tap on, on, on the back, but really it's we're just very lucky that we have have so so much resources and so much land. Yeah. Um but the the Tarkine, when I go down there, how long should I spend down there? What should I do? Oh, if you could stay down there for uh, how long is a piece of string? But if you could stay down there for a while and immerse, definitely do it. Some great um so Bonarong Wildlife Sanctuary good people there in the tree projects that do incredible work that climb these trees and actually find new insects and um, that have never been found. Again, in the world's tall, tallest flowering plants, I'll get you up a big tree, get you up a big eucalypt, you'll love that. Um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I can't really describe it, but being up there and seeing a big, incredible, you know, wedge-tailed eagle, just incredible, like being up in these perches and just seeing something flying along and just doing what it's always done is, yeah, just... It's a special place. And then realising the tree you're in, you look out and there's like 20 more of them of that size and you're just like, my gosh, the carbon stored in this. Like, you know, it would take 15 people to get around and hold hands and yet, you know, the four or 500 years to grow and yet people can cut down in 30 minutes. Yeah, I had uh, Nicholas Carter on the show uh, last week again and he, environmental researcher, and, you know, it's everything that we're talking about here is why I'm 
quite optimistic is mm. that the science, even since the Paris Agreement, it's become even more and more abundantly clear or at least more mainstream that in order to, to sort of heal the planet and get out of the, the climate crisis that we're in, the, the most important thing we can do is rewild the earth. And we, we understand what that means from an energy point of view and we now very much understand what that means from a food point of view and it means creating more calories from less land, mm-hmm. which means eating more plants, yep. eating, eating less animal products particularly. More locally, less carbon footprint to travel further, yeah. And, and it's the cheapest way to do it, to rewild our earth, a dollar a tree or a rainforest species tree, you know, to establish, I should say, sorry. I mean, that's a pretty good solution. So, I mean, I think we, we figured out the numbers. If we had, um, but again, half the world's population's in poverty, so that's a tricky one there. But I think it worked out to be it was 200 It was $200 per person globally who you know, could afford that if it was over the month of recurring giving, so 20 bucks a month or one-off. We'd have a pretty good crack at this to be able to rewild the world in the next 30 years. And what we're going to remember is, is we've got 30 years to achieve that by 2050, but it takes 30 years for these trees to establish to be absorbing that carbon. So. And you're, you're talking there about people coming together proactively and donating to help raise funds, right? Yeah, unfortunately it's a monetary value. Yeah. It is, yeah, so, still, yeah. But the other side of the conversation is, uh, and again, the money has to come from somewhere, right? Mm. But the other side is... And I'm not sure if this is something that you've looked at. Is when countries are, are meeting, I think there's a, a UN meeting perhaps later this year around governments committing mm. to supporting biodiversity and rewilding and mm. setting specific targets for every country. Mm. And then countries like uh, Australia or the US or China being able to help, say, countries like Brazil who may mm. not have the money, but they have the land that needs to be rewilded mm. and and essentially... Bolsonaro, he's doing the complete opposite at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. But essentially having a conversation where instead of it just being looked at as like country, country, country... You need to look at this as a global collective. Yes, yep. and and realising that, it you know, whether the rewilding is happening in the Daintree or South America or Tasmania... Mm. It's, it all affects the, the world. Like climate mm. change is a, is, a, is a world problem. Yeah. You don't draw down carbon in the danger and then people just in Queensland are okay. Yeah, that's right. And well, or on the flip side of that, we're doing all that great work, but oh, let's do a Darnie mine. Let's go and, you know, dig up all this coal and burn it. Like it, it really, you know, um, yeah, that, that, this is why I think, uh, you know, Scott Morrison wasn't invited to have a speaking position at the next Paris, uh, the next climate talks was for this reason. It's like, well, what's there really to talk about? You think coal's great. You held up as a prop in parliament. <laughs> yeah. What do you think other countries think of Australia right now in terms of uh, leading by example? Oh, horrendous. Utterly horrendous. I think we looked at with complete hip- hypocrites. We're the biggest polluter per capita. Um, you know, we literally are a quarry for, for Asia. Um, we are, and our deforestation record is appalling. Isn't it's ironic though that like China, for example, buys a lot of our products yeah. and like I'm, I'm talking about food and health products and, mm. and whatnot because we're seen as clean and green. <laughs> we should be the clean green destination for the world. We should be the beacon and we can 
And, um, yeah, again, I just feel we've done such a good job at suppressing education, suppressing you know, like media outlets, not giving real facts and information and engaging the people because they know they can get away with it. They know they can, you know, um, educate a mob or educate um, certain people and go off the backbone of what they have done in the past. Um, if it is, you know, being, you know, broad-scale farming or logging, let's, let's evolve a bit, yeah? Let's move to the next steps. Like we'll talk about it in Tassie. Let's get Tassie doing, you know, aquaponics and aeroponics and incredible food systems, which they have the incredible luxury with the pristine water and oxygen, you know, they claim the best oxygen in the world. And, you know, let's really continue to highlight those qualities. And then the danger, let's continue to highlight the incredible oldest world rainforest and the cassowaries and the, you know, Bennett's tree kangaroo and that we're trying to find a way to actually really save the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, we, we have some incredible gems here, so let, let's focus on that rather than go, no, come on, let's get a cheap buck out of this and, yeah. How do you... Because I think most people understand that, mm. right? And, and But, you know, action speaks louder than words, right? And it almost feels like they're... they're I think some people over the journey of, say, the last 10, 20, 30 years who have been in this conversation have probably lost a bit of faith when, mm. when you know, certain political parties have been voted in and there's inaction and, and whatnot. Mm. If you were, say, that, say you were given the floor to, to, to speak to lobbyists and the government in parliament and you had two or three minutes mm. to say something to them that could perhaps change the way that Australia views this issue, mm. how how would you how would you try and get through to them? I think straight up, I'd say if you if you knew you weren't owned, would you do it differently? As in, by lobbyists supporting their bosses and their agendas, would your conscience want to do it differently? Are you a different human being to what you're doing right now? I don't know, it's, it's hard to say because it is just so complex and so big, but I think what it is is just trying to get them to get their humanity back and realise I can make a stand here in the position I'm in. Um, but then look what happens. <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull, rolled. You know, I mean, you can go talk about Abbott before that, but Wrecking Ball Abbott, rolled. <laughs> you know, I kind of think, you know, you, you, there's ways I think uh, it's so big now and everyone is, there isn't just one thing that could be said, but I think it's just trying to make them reflect back on their humanity and then not the um, not the injection they get into their parties to build the power. So you say rolled, you're talking about anyone who comes out and and speaks about climate change yeah, and wanting to, to yeah, wanting know, to do better. Wanting to do better or not not following um, not denying. the line of the party. Yeah, but not following the line of the party. And that's the thing with these parties, you get people on the extreme end, the middle, and then you know, maybe left. So what kind of leader do you think we need then? I think it, ourselves. You, you know, me, other people really going, well, I get this and, and, and I don't know, try and be a little bit more hungry for it. I mean, as we know, mate, like we don't do this. It's because we know we have such a small window to make such incredible long-term change. Why would we not all want to be part of that? Why would we not, you know, like little mycelium, why would we not all want to work together to get this right? But... Um, I think it's the individuals, I think. Forget just the leader, it's the individual kind of, as we know, like daily choices, you know, making little changes and celebrating that, like not ripping into someone who's trying to go plant-based and, you know, might have some fish 
and going, oh, aren't you vegan? What water, are you doing? You water the seeds of love and compassion, as Melanie Choi says. Spot on. And we water them, as you know, like we do with any seed, and it grows into fruition and then they will pass those branches off to other people and then that's where I see powerful happening and, you know, movements. But I think one thing, yeah, it'd be nice if, um, you know, people just took a bit of a, a breath and didn't go in with emotion all the time and actually went in with just sort of, okay, let's see how they're seeing their way and what I can gain from that rather than just going in with a sledgehammer <laughs> on all sides, every side, you know. It, um, I think it just doesn't work if people do that. Yeah, it's the, I mean, that's the only way to reduce the amount of division. We have so much division right now mm. and it's, it, it creates an environment where it's impossible to have a healthy discussion. Yeah. Um, and I was hoping the pandemic, I think if anything we learned from the pandemic, I think that brought us together on a common very common serious issue and I don't know, like for me I kind of looked at it and thought, okay, well, we can do these things and we did see little positive impacts to wildlife actually coming into areas that were usually taken over by humans. But, um, you know, and obviously the flights is a bit of a bonus that you know, they're not kicking about but some people, you know, um, you know, have obviously found that hard. But I feel what it has shown is we can do this. We can actually at a global level borderline shut down everything for a pandemic, well, maybe we do have to go to that level for the climate crisis. I think we actually do. And I'd rather, it, it wouldn't have been nice if it wasn't forced upon us, but I think that's always the case. When you say we like have to do that, what do, you, what do you mean? You mean people travelling less, people working more from home, well, changing think, the way we live? I, I mean, I, I always regret during the pandemic that we didn't get as many people divesting. Like I wish I got more people divesting on reflection, like what we all could have done differently. I actually was there going, people were a bit more gauge. Why didn't we go hard on that then? Because how many more people could have then gone, oh, yeah, shivers, I'll, I'll divest. Yeah, that's, I've got time. And I think that's what happens naturally. Our systems make us so busy, so under the pump um, and what we're expected to do in life. We don't have the time to change and we don't have the time to question. Correct. Where I felt oh, I know we lost an opportunity for the planet by not being on our game there, not by not wanting to be on our game where we're human. We learn from that and then mm. implement it again. So, but I do feel like, in in fairness to the overall conversation, I do feel in the last year, the the planetary health conversation has progressed ginormously. Yep. These ideas are are now becoming mainstream. Like people, I hear people, friends who I have had no interest in this area talking about biodiversity. So, yeah, I feel like even though you would be sitting back and thinking about how much more you could have done. Sure, sure, sure. I, I, yeah. I feel like we have made huge progress in the last year. Yeah, I and mean, it's, it's always that interesting thing is it's like that education but then the big one's action. How do you get that? Oh, okay, I'll get that and then the action because that's really I think where we're at. And, and, I, and anything in action, I mean, you know, what, what I love with action is just start small yep. but just start. So the things that you're talking about, that's why I like the triple switch. You can go straight to half cut. You can you can switch those three things: bank, super, yeah. and energy. Um, if you're not in Australia, and actually, full can, full transparency on that. We've got you can now pick your super. We haven't just got so one. We've got options. We've got people can then do their own research and go a bit further. But we're like, look, this is what we think are like doing it better than the rest. Have a you know, do your research. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I think just going back to that. Actions do speak louder than words mm. and it just comes down to starting, you know, making the, the small swaps of, of swapping red meat for, for legumes and 
you know, swapping dairy milk for a plant-based milk yeah. without having to to put an enormous pressure around sort of flipping your diet upside down overnight and, mm. and, and, and thinking about the label so much. Mm. I think most people, whether we're talking about diet or, or anything in their life, mm. do better with a, a very small step, get yeah. some success, feel good about it, yeah. and then look and see how you can do better. Totally. I mean, what about you, mate? Eight years now and it's a transition, you know, and you, you, you get better. As you said, you just start. And I think you pointed out before, I mean, like your book, for example, that's a starting point a great starting point, like just a little, you know, well, I think it's incredible what you're doing, but I think that's just a, 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 you're talking about leadership before. I think that's an example of leadership. You know, really just this is what I'm going to do with this. And I think, um, yeah, I, I like that. Start somewhere, but without saying, I know you said just do it, don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll definitely be sending you a copy of my book, that's for sure. Yeah, brilliant, mate. Yeah, I can't let you go without the, the cassoulets. You've, yeah, you've spoken about them a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, and you showed me a video. Do you remember that video you showed me? Which one? There's probably a few <laughs> where this cassoulet just sort of creeps in behind you as you're, oh, you're, you, yeah, you're doing yeah, yeah. a sort of piece to camera. Yep. They're pretty incredible, these animals. Man, they're just that velociraptor uh, emu, you know, like they shouldn't be here. They're they like look a, a little scary. Like I, I'm not sure that I would want to sort of front off with one of them. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, I, I got chased by one recently in the Daintree. Yeah. Describe what a cassowary is to, to someone who has no idea. So a cassowary is, imagine an emu that's black, but it has like a big hanging sort of crop at the front, which is a brilliant sort of like a red and an orange and it has an incredible husk or a helmet, which is shaped differently. Um, so it almost looks like it's got a fin on the top of its head. Um, but they are literally the gardeners of the Dane tree. How big are they? Oh, they can get big. Like, like, so like an, females, emu, yeah. an emu is bigger than an ostrich. Yeah. So it, same within that, that size. So the male is smaller, female is larger. Um, she lays her eggs and the, the father actually brings up the chicks. Um, and, yeah, they just, as I said, like they are the, the, the gardens of the Dane tree. The seed dispersal they do is incredible. Um, they are aggressive if, you know, like they're a wild animal, um, the most dangerous bird on the planet. Um, we have some dangerous animals in Australia. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. Even a kangaroo can be, can be dangerous. Totally. Like it's like anything, just give them space. <laughs> they don't let them be. Um, but yeah, I, I, I foolishly got a little too close to one, but I had my backup, um, where I was near the eco lodges in the hut and, uh, was able to just got a little too close and I could just sense he was not happy because he has his chick, he's you know, defensive mechanism. So I had to run <laughs> into the hut as it came running out at me, but I got some great footage after that as well. But I did everything you're not meant to do. You're not meant to run. Uh, or, you know, if you've got an escape route, great, but climb a tree or get into a ball. So, but, um, yeah, we saw 12 cassowaries in the last trip. It was awesome. And they're endangered. They're, yeah, yeah. It's believed, CSRSO believe is anywhere, but this is, you know, done back in 2004, 4,000 of them left. We've got friends who could be as little as 1,500 left. So that's hugely worrying. And the, and the issues, the things that are, you know, likely to take them out is uh, cars, which is why the Daintree Bridge being built is so incredible. Uh, you know, not being built, sorry, is so important. Um, and again, development, we're taking away their habitat you know, and we're taking away food and corridors for them to be able to survive in. Yeah. For the Speaking mighty of, 
endangered animals. I read something about the white rhino yesterday. Oh, yeah. Have you yeah. read about that? Yeah, it's just. I think there's. I think this is like the the last. I, th- I think it's the white rhino. Yeah. It's it's the last attempt to to try and bring them back from the brink. Yeah. To yeah. to to essentially try and get them to reproduce, and if they can't, then we may lose them. Yep. It's uh. That's the thing. We can do all this cool stuff. Let's um, try to stop people from hunting them and <laughs> trophies and <laughs> all the other stuff. Uh, all right, mate. Well, yeah. thank you for, for coming back, mate, giving me you. an update. Yeah. Everything that you're doing is amazing. Pleasure. Uh, hopefully next time we catch up, part of that beard is starting to grow back it, because mate. that beard does represent the the forest after all. So... That's a game. Next time, let's hope it gets to, to two-thirds or three-quarters. And, and then back. <laughs> Jimmy's back. Jimmy's, Jimmy, when, when, when the full beard comes back, have you thought about what you're going to do? Mate, look, if I get the full beard back and we're humming along with a trillion trees in the next 30 years, um, Dane Tree's brought back. Um, you've helped and, you know, your incredible supporters have helped with that. Um, you know, we might still get people going half cut for different causes. It might be about the Great Barrier Reef. So it's all going to be about the environment. It might be about mangroves. It might be about regenerative agriculture. So there's a bunch of things that I think we'll be doing to, yeah, continue on with that. We've thought about a lot. What happens if there's no halves left? We'll come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> all right, mate. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, mate. Thanks so much. There we go, friends. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you are interested in learning more about Half Cut and anything we spoke about in this conversation today, please go to halfcut.org. Be sure to connect with Jimmy on the socials too, Instagram at halfcut.org, and let him know what you thought about today's episode. He's a very active fellow on the socials, loves connecting with the Plant Proof community and answering questions. And as we spoke about, 100% of the proceeds I receive from the sales of my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, are going towards his organization to protect the Daintree rainforest. We've calculated that every single book will help save two square meters of the Daintree rainforest, which is pretty cool. To order your copy, just head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. That's all for this one. Thanks again for hanging out with me and I look forward to doing it again soon.